the shedding back and forth. Um, so the Pfizer team found that in the Pfizer documents, there are multiple instances in which shedding is documented, even though they don't use that word. Um, Pfizer defines exposure to the vaccine, to the intervention, which is the vaccine, as taking place in skin contact and inhalation. That, that's their term, right? Yep. So the frustrating thing about the Pfizer documents is they're quite um, you know, epigrammatic in places. Like they don't spell out. Does that mean when you breathe on someone, what is the mechanism? Is it this, you know, like they just, they're, they're talking to themselves and they're like, oh yeah, Biff, it's inhalation and skin contact. Right. And then also um, there is a very concerning section. Well, there's so much about reproduction, as I've said, it's just oh, yeah. like all about the genitals and the uterus and the menstrual cycle and which, you know, it's a respiratory virus, allegedly. Why are you analyzing the sex organs of rats you've just sacrificed after they've made it if it's a respiratory, you know, if your focus is on respiratory health? But their, their focus throughout is on um, ruining women's reproductive capacity. There's no way around it. And the shedding, the other shedding iteration is vaccinated men were warned not in the study, were warned not to have intercourse with unvaccinated women of childbearing age without using two reliable forms of contraception. And uh, they didn't say why, right? But they did, the the context shows that there's something in the semen of vaccinated men that can be damaging either to women or to the zygote or Mm -hmm. site, right? It's unclear, right? But they're very... uh, very firm about it. They're very clear about it, you know, and, and to me as a feminist, it's like two reliable forms of contraception. It's a struggle for women to get men to wear one reliable form. (laughs) You've got to use a condom and the pill or a condom and a diaphragm or, you know, like it's a very belt and suspenders approach. Like they're very freaked out about something in the semen of vaccinated men. And several studies have found like in andrology that the vaccine suppresses sperm motility and sperm, Mm -hmm. we know that. Um, Amy Kelly, my COO, has found that lipid nanoparticles degrade the testes of baby boys in utero and they degrade the Sertoli cells and the Leydig cells, which um, manage the kind of the hormonal factory of masculinity. So is it something related to that? We don't know. Um, Now on the, on the, that's on the production of shedding side. On the reception of shedding side, purely anecdotal. Many, you know, as I was deplatformed for saying, women report m- multiply, independently. Now I've got now got dozens of examples that when they're near or living with or working with recently vaccinated women, they have problems, and the problems range from menstrual type cramps to bleeding. Um, to uh, it feeling ill. Uh, and, And all I was doing was reporting that women are seeing this. Good evening. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton, Creative Director of this Alliance of Medical Professionals and their supporters. And we have a lot of questions about this topic, and we've already received many of those questions from you. What Dr. Naomi Wolf told Bernadette Pager in that children's health defense video that you just saw was that shedding of material from people who've been vaccinated with the COVID mRNA vaccines is real. That 
Pfizer knew about it. It's in the Pfizer documents that a court ordered Pfizer to release because the public, especially medical professionals, need to know what's in medications that they're supposed to be recommending to their patients. As you know, Pfizer wanted to keep that information secret for 75 years. But Naomi has a team of scientists poring over the Pfizer documents as they are slowly released. And so now, we here at the FLCCC are talking about something we've never talked about before. Because we'd seen no hard scientific evidence of it, but that has changed. That has changed. Our president and chief medical officer, whom you know well, Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, and nurse practitioner Scott Marsland, who's been with us before, he is Pierre's partner in their leading edge clinic, their clinical practice. They have been treating patients exhibiting injuries from substances that come from those vaccines, if that's what you really should be calling them. But these are people who've never been vaccinated, but who live and work very close to other people who were vaccinated. That got Pierre, excellent researcher that we know him to be, wanting to learn a lot more, wanting to really deep, take a deep dive into examining the data about possible shedding of material from these vaccines. And tonight, Pierre and Scott are here to tell us all about what they have seen and what they have found. Our Dr. Paul Merrick, our leading scientific officer, is going to come in a little bit later and join the discussion. We have three nurses already online to take the questions you type into Q&A, and I will be back with you know, many of the questions that you have typed in for the doctors. But let's get started because Pierre has already done a substack on this, the first of several. Pierre, you know, this, this is quite a subject and you and Scott apparently have seen a lot. Tell us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought tonight I, I'd sort of I was going to uh, just show some slides first, and then I thought Scott and I would have a discussion uh, about uh, some of our clinical observations. Um, but I think first it's probably best let's let's go over what's known about the science of uh, behind shedding and why shedding is not only a possibility but a reality. Um, so let me let me go to my slides. Okay, so um, I just got to move my Zoom screen a little bit. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about shedding. Um, so first of all, one thing that has to be established, right, is that um, although a lot of us have known that these are gene therapies, I mean, the, the common nomenclature, right, is that they're vaccines. And I think that um, reality that they're gene therapies gets obscured. And for this topic tonight, this discussion, uh, we really need to understand because shedding really uh, really relates to gene therapies and really gene therapies alone. Um, but this meets the definition. So the FDA has a document actually from 2015 giving guidance around the development of gene therapies, um, which, which is an application that is increasingly being uh, tested for, for various uh, therapeutics, vaccines. Um, but if you look at their definition, right, so a gene therapy product are products that mediate um, their effects by transcription and or translation of transfer genetic material. Um, 
that's what these vaccines are. It's very clear. It's mRNA, which is genetic, genetic material, which is then transcribed or, tra or translated into a protein, right, which is the spike protein. So um, there's no confusion about this. These are gene uh, therapy medicinal products or GTMPs. Um, hold on. Um, the other thing is in that same document, they literally define what shedding is, right? So shedding is the release of these gene therapy products from the patient by any or all of the following routes, right? So all sort of uh, body fluid secretions um, uh, are capable of containing the product of that gene therapy. And so uh, because they know this, they literally state that for any gene therapy product, you should do a shedding study, right? And it's different than a biodistribution study, which really looks for the dissemination of the protein within the body, but they're saying, well, you need to see if it's being, uh, I'm going to say shed or excreted would be the more medical term, right? Is it released from the patient's body? And further, um, because they're doing that because they want to know, you know, when you treat someone with a gene therapy, will it affect others, right? Because you, you, <laughs> if it does, your therapy is literally being transmitted without the consent of others, right? So this is really an alarming um, aspect of this novel, you know, cutting edge uh, therapy is that it has the potential to affect others. So it's not just you, the patient being treated, it could be others in your family, your environment, your colleagues, your, your contacts. And so they emphasize the need for shedding studies. Um, and it's really to provide, you know, from this, <clears throat> from this uh, section of that document, it's to provide information about the likelihood of transmission to untreated individuals. I didn't sign up for these vaccines. Um, I would like to know if I am susceptible being treated with these, right, or, or being exposed uh, to, to treatments that uh, people in my community and my society, my country, uh, decided to uh, elect. Um, and it gets even more concerning because they're also emphasized that you can't just do animal studies, right? They, they, they're they saying you can't rely on animal studies. They don't substitute for human shedding studies and they should be done. So what's, what's and there's also another requirement with the gene therapy is that because this is so uh, kind of unique and specific that anytime you do a study, it actually requires another layer of kind of research oversight, which is the Institutional Biosafety Committee approval, right? We have, who would have particular expertise in this therapy, all of the implications, all of the risks. And so I, you, you would need not just a regular standard, what's called an IRB. So for our listeners, if you don't know what an IRB is, it's an institutional review board. And they oversee all human subjects research. So anytime you do a study, retrospective, prospective, you have to submit your protocol. They look at uh, how are you going to study something, what your intervention is, how are you going to collect the data, how are you going to keep it private, you, you know, uh, confidential, all of that. Um, but there are some very sophisticated therapies. And so there are particular uh, safeguards around, you know, how you store, deliver, inject, um, and then in this case, you know, you also have to, you know, for these particular products, there needs to be an other level of oversight, which is they want to make sure that you're studying. I'm going to just translate. They want to make sure that you're studying shedding correctly, right? And I don't even know what a shedding study looks like. I'm not I'm really an expert in this area as far as uh, in the in the real world application of studies. Um, but I, what I can tell you about these gene therapy products is that they weren't done, right? We were doing uh, science at warp speed, 
But there's another disturbing aspect, and this really comes out of the work of um, uh, Catherine Watts, uh, a paralegal uh, legal investigator uh, expert, Todd Callender, uh, and Sasha Latipova. And Sasha uh, has been lecturing in many uh, places around the world, and they, they really literally reviewed 100 years of legislative um, um, you know, of legislation surrounding uh, topics of like public health emergencies and, and healthcare. And there, there's kind of this, as I understand, again, I'm not an expert, I'm relying on their work, but their conclusions based on uh, a deep study of the hist history of uh, legislative actions is that there is something called a countermeasure. Um, and it applies in a public health emergency. And to be honest, these vaccines, you know, I'm trying to answer the question, why was shedding not done? Because it's not just that shedding studies weren't done. There are many other types of studies that are normally required to develop a vaccine. I think a lot of our listeners know and have heard, you know, statements from those that typically to develop a vaccine, you need like 10 years. What did we have? We had like a year, right? So how did we get through 10 years of safety and efficacy evaluations in one year? Well, we did that by not doing all the normally required studies to ensure safety. And it's because it's not a medical product. You know, and again, this is their conclusions is that, the, you know, and, and I'm gonna say it kind of bluntly um, and, and, and frighteningly, their conclusion is that this was presented to the public as, you know, it seems from a, a normal layperson not educated, including me, right? I, I didn't know any of this. I'm not a legal expert, but it was presented as like a normal medical product that just, you know, they, they did or Operation Warp Speed. They spent billions of dollars and they just made it faster. Um, they didn't make it faster. They took shortcuts. Uh, and it's because they categorize this as a countermeasure. And I'll also speak bluntly, the way I understand this and my sense of this is that it was a military uh, response, is that this was a countermeasure to a bioweapon. And there is legislation allowing them to counteract such a threat in a very rapid way, right? And so I kind of agree with the concept in general. Like, so let's say if you're in a war and you get attacked, you don't have time, 10 years to do studies to figure out how to protect yourself. You want a rapid ability to respond. And so I think our government and our military characterized uh, the current situation of this country as being attacked by a bioweapon. And I think there is substance to saying that. They categorize this as a, uh, as a countermeasure. Operation Warp Speed was literally headed. The COO was from the Department of Defense. He was a general. Um, and when you look at the legislative language around counter countermeasures, it specifically states that they do not require clinical evaluations. So you don't really have to even do the testing. You know, Part of this, um, you know, I, I think Sasha calls it kabuki theater or like a dog and pony show is what I would use, is that, you know, because Pfizer and Moderna did studies and was published in these journals, it gives the impression that these were fully evaluated products. And then they finally underwent the final stage of testing, which is clinical efficacy in humans. Um, that's not true. A lot of the pre-testing before you can test it in a human was not done, such as shedding. And when you look at the legislative language that they present, it, there, there's clear statements in, the, in that legislation of what a countermeasure is, is that really all that's required is the director of the Health and Human Services AGs to recommend it. And it only has to meet the requirement that 
that person thinks it may be effective. It's really astonishing, right? Um, and a lot of us who've been studying the vaccines and are rightly concerned about the toxicity and the lethality of the vaccines that have been measured from many different data sources, including life insurance industry, you know, we've been saying, you know, where are the genotoxicity studies? Where are the, where are the full reproductive toxicity? No, we, we didn't do them. Instead, we recommended it to pregnant women, breastfeeding women across the world without the requisite studies to determine safety before doing that. And and the reason why that happened is there's a legal basis for it. And, and I, I believe that we should understand our failed COVID response as, as um, I don't want to overstate it, but it really does smell military and wartime, right? Because I, I privately, aside from this topic, have been wondering, like, how come we disappeared medical ethics and, and bodily autonomy and experimental therapies without fully informed consent? I mean, all of those things, I guess, are for peacetime and an orderly society, and they disappeared. And a lot of us were very alarmed because we couldn't comport why those things were being ignored, violated, uh, dismissed, when that's our normal process of how we function as, as a healthy, responsible medical system. And we didn't see those uh, guide, guidelines and principles being followed. So, so a couple of things. Let me stop for a second. So number one, we're talking about a gene therapy. We're talking about a therapy that requires shedding studies because there's risks of shedding. That's why there's lots of documentation suggesting that we should do it. They should be human studies, and they were not done because of this sort of legal shortcut uh, that it was a countermeasure. But let's talk more about what this gene therapy is. So it is gene therapy. It's genetic material, and it's delivered in something called a lipid nanoparticle, right, which is a tiny sack at a very small size. Um, and it's synthetic, right? So it's made um, uh, by these pharmaceutical, you know, these vaccine manufacturers. They, they know how to make lipid nanoparticles. So it's a fatty sac enclosing genetic material. Now, that mimics natural nanoparticles. So in our bodies, we have something when I kind of use the terminology like a lipid nanoparticle, I would say kind of refers to a synthetic one that's made for pharmaceutical purposes. Whereas when we use the term exosomes or extracellular vesicles, um, those are endogenous natural uh, um, biological um, components. So we have lots of exosomes. They were originally, as you can see here, they're originally thought to represent cellular debris. And over time, they actually realized that they're really important in messaging and control. They almost have like hormonal properties. So they direct function of different organs and different biological activities. So these are biolog biologically active, tiny little particles. And our body uses them uh, to kind of control and order a physiologic function and homeostasis. So they're really small, right? So exosomes, the natural one, they range from 40 to 160 nanometers with an average of 100. The LNPs and the COVID mRNA vaccines range on average a little bit larger, 100 to 400. I've actually heard different things. Uh, I've, I've actually heard different estimates that these synthetic LNPs are smaller. So let's talk about nanoparticles. So I already kind of told you what they can contain. So the natural biological, let's say, exosomes, uh, they can contain uh, growth factors, enzymes, metabolites, proteins, and nucleic acids. The synthetic ones, they can put anything inside. So here with these COVID vaccines, we put synthetic mRNA. Um, and then the next question is, uh, and I don't think I put a slide on this, but 
There's a paper showing that as of right now, and I was I was shocked to learn this, but there's 1,814 current consumer products across uh, many different applications that use nanoparticle technology. So to understand the implications of using nanoparticles for whatever application you want as a vaccine, a therapeutic to deliver drugs, um, th there are risks to them. They're so tiny and they can go everywhere. And we'll talk about that. So like when you inject a lipid nanoparticle, uh, right? We were told that it stays in your arm and then whatever, it goes away for a few days. I can't even remember the lies now, but um, we've since discovered that uh, regulatory agencies were well aware um, from this, this is a leaked letter from the European Medical Agency on the executive director. They admitted that the lipid nanoparticles can distribute rather nonspecifically to many organs throughout the body and they can accumulate there. Um, like I said, LMPs or their natural equivalent, this is where it gets worse, right? So they can go everywhere, but do they stay in the body? Do they stay in the person receive that therapy or can they then be excreted? It's well known that we exhale and secrete in our body fluids, these tiny nanoparticles. So exosomes are present in all of our body fluids and in our exhaled air. So if you're gonna inject a nanoparticle in someone, you know, you're putting it in, you have to worry about how it comes out and how much comes out and can affect others in the environment. Um, this is my uh, point before. This was from a review paper. I, I, I This one got me. This is where I bolded. I was like, what? There's we, we, We're literally proliferating this industry of nanoparticle technology, and we're using it in, in food, in antibiotics, textiles. I don't even know what a sports tool is, and I don't know why a nanoparticle would be involved, but um, it, it, it's shocking to me that we're, we're using these uh, and, and one of the other themes that I got in my research is that in every review article of this new burgeoning kind of industry and applications of nanoparticle technology is over and over and over again. I read sense, sentences calling for more studies because they understand the implications of using this stuff. They know the risks. And there's things like more studies are needed to evaluate the safety of nanoparticle technology. And this is what, from one paper, they actually did a literature review and they did a search for, I think the terms were safety, toxicity, or risks. And um, the amount of studies on the therapeutic aspects versus the risk, you can see the green is all the rah-rah the stuff of how well it works. The red is studying the risk. And you can see that this technology was been in place for many years before you saw the even appearance of a toxicity study, and they're dwarfed by the efficacy studies. So remember, anything in medicine, you got to be safe before you're effective. I mean, do no harm. And we got this backwards, and we've had it backwards for years. And so I'm, I'm very troubled by this. Um, the other things is they can accumulate and they have biologic activity and they can also be toxic. Um, we know that they can be toxic. I guess that would be dependent on the size of the particle as well as the dose of the particle. Um, they also can be therapeutic. Now, as Naomi mentioned in kind of that opening video, right? I mean, she, she's doing the deep dive on uh, the Pfizer documents, what is known and this was the language, and this caught, caught a lot of people's attention, including mine, but I, I love the way Naomi characterized it. I, I can't remember how she could, but the, the language, I would use the term is obfuscating. It's just, I read English. I think I'm a pretty good reader. I've read all my life, but it's very hard to understand what they're saying or not saying here, you know, because they keep using, and it's all over the, they keep using the term exposed to the intervention. So 
I'm like, why are they using exposed? Because they use exposed in, in, in instances where it's absolutely clear, meaning they received an injection and they'll use the term, so, you know, the subject was exposed to the intervention. It's clunky. Why don't you just say they received the injection? And here it has double meanings, right? So to be exposed to the vaccine, does it mean you're injected with the vaccine or you're exposed to someone with the vaccine? So if you read this language, um, you know, in one of the, the the main review paper, which guided a lot of my research, which was written by this independent researcher named Helen Banun, um, it was published uh, around a year, maybe a little bit ago. It, it's absolutely, it, it's absolutely damning and really. She did a really deep dive, and she guided a lot of my research. I read a lot of her primary sources, but this is how she interprets that language. And she says. This clearly means that any contact, including sexual contact with someone who has received the vaccines, exposes those who have not to the intervention, which is the mRNA, and it's particularly during breastfeeding as well. So it's not just inhalational, but it's through body fluids like breastfeeding, and that they were concerned. They wanted to monitor events where a breastfeeding mother could transmit the mRNA if she had received the vaccine. So that they clearly were concerned. The FDA knows they should be doing this, and so there was some kind of lame attempt with obfuscating language that they were apparently monitoring the risks of this. Um, just to give you an example, this actually came from Sasha Latipova because I was with her at a conference and we were talking. I was told, I was, this is weeks ago, I was telling about my interest and I was doing research on shedding. And in some of her research, she said, you know, there is a product that has it on their insert. And so this is a gene therapy. I think it's for macular degeneration. Um, and I think it's injected uh, into the eye, although I don't know too much about it, but all I needed to know is that this is a similar gene therapy and literally on their insert, they have this language, transient and low level. Oh, that's very reassuring, just transient and it's low level. Um, show me the data, um, but may occur in a body fluid like the patient's tears and she should advise patients proper handling, and that this these precautions should be held, followed for up to seven days. Again, I would love to see the data that supports that recommendation, but we received no recommendation like this with this global mass vaccination campaign. There's no comment like, yeah, you'll get vaccinated, but be careful of your loved ones for, let's say, 24, 48 hours or whatever they wanted to study. It wasn't studied. Um, so how, let's say someone, so we've already established that they distribute widely, they can be in fluids, and they can be excreted, and there's a risk of the excreted. So, so what? Let's say someone excretes a nanoparticle. Are we at risk? I mean, we have, we're covered by an integument, which is the skin. Um, we have a lot of different processes to filter out environmental toxins. So are we at risk? Yes, we are. Nanoparticles are readily pass, uh, you know, physiologic barriers like skin, follicles, conjunctiva, lungs, they can be absorbed into the lungs and absorbed into the body and then further distribute. And this is well known. That's why the constant refrain for doing studies of this stuff. Um, this was from the Parry et al. Uh, comprehensive review of spikeopathy. And they included this table where they looked at other nanoparticles um, and they, they of, of genetic material. And this is just from different uh, research over the last few or four uh, years, some of them referring specifically to the spike protein. But you can see the, 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 the range in which these things are still present in people's bodies and thus can be excreted uh, are going from three days, four months, 28 days. And this was published before that paper that we've all talked about from a month ago, where they're finding spike protein in the blood in some subjects for up to 187 days. And that's not the max. That's just when they stop the study. So 
I, you know, I don't know that we can say you're only at risk for two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks. I mean, there are some patients for which it persists for a long time. Um, so then the question is, you know, let's just talk about pregnant uh, mothers. Um, you know, what are the risks to their baby if they get vaccinated? Because remember, uh, we've been reassured by our trusted public health agencies repeatedly over and over that it's safe in pregnancy, safe in pregnancy. Well, it turns out that nanoparticles can clearly cross the placenta. In fact, there are companies that are trying to develop nanoparticles to deliver medicines or gene editing to a fetus uh, because they know it can cross the placenta. Now, do we have evidence that the crossing of the center is causing problems? Well, I, you know, we don't have definitive. These weren't studied, but when you look at the clinical reports of adverse events, this is again a FOIA-obtained document. This is not readily made available to the public. But when you see some of these exposures, um, for me, obviously, there's, you know, obviously pregnancy complications, spontaneous abortion, stillbirths, we know they all happen. But some of the timing is really shocking, like when it happens within one day. Um, now, there could be many reasons why you lose a baby, right? It might not just be that it's hurting the, the fetus. It could be hurting the ovaries, the hormonal balance. It could be causing microclotting. It could cause be, you know, low perfusion to the baby. So I, I can't say it's the shedding that's causing these events, um, but we're overwhelmed with evidence of, of toxicity in, in pregnancy. And then lastly, you know, the breast milk, uh, we have studies now showing that uh, mRNA can be detected in breast milk. One study was up to 48 hours. They didn't think it was that significant. We're seeing PEG, which is uh, polyethylene glycol, which is one of the constituents on the um, uh, lipid nanoparticle. It's to make it last longer um, and help it to um, uh, not diffuse the glossal placenta. But even with PEG, there is evidence that it can cross the placenta. Um, and then with breast milk, for sure. So we're finding stuff in breast milk. So any evidence that breastfeeding is a risk? Apparently there is. Now, one of my thoughts about the presence in breast milk when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, you know, if there's mRNA in the breast milk and the baby, you know, swallows it, clearly it wouldn't survive the stomach acid. It would be degraded, digested, and rendered inert. And then I came across this paper, right, where they write that they have found that milk extracellular vesicles can survive the extreme conditions of the GI tract. And they're internalized by, uh, you know, budding them into a cell. They become bioavailable. They reach the bloodstream and they can go to peripheral tissues. So the stomach even is not a good barrier against the absorption of lipid nanoparticles. And then further, another FOIA, right, that was discovered is that there was a bunch of non-severe AEs in breastfeeding. It was 20% of the reports who had, again, exposure to the vaccines. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. They received the vaccine. They weren't exposed to it. They received it. So uh, breastfeeding women who had been vaccinated, um, you saw some really concerning AE. So there were some of them that were serious facial paralysis. I see if we've, uh, Scott and I both have patients with facial paralysis. Lymphadenopathy, very common after the vaccine and blurred vision. Um, and, then, and then in infants, skin exfoliation, rashes, swollen skin, and unspecified sickness. So suddenly babies are becoming acutely ill from breastfeeding. So this is real. And then they also documented strokes, convulsions, and respiratory failure. And in this little uh, piece of their document with respiratory failure, I mean, I, again, I have to behave myself here, but it, it's really hard. But they're documenting cases of respiratory distress and failure and they exclude them because, let's just follow the English and the language, 
Four cases were determined to be non-contributory and were not included in discussion since these cases involved exposures to the vaccine during the mother's pregnancy or through breastfeeding. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, the child becomes acutely ill in a respiratory failure or respiratory distress state, and we exclude them because they were, what again, again, the word exposed, they were exposed during the mother's pregnancy, shouldn't we be worrying about? I just can't even discuss this. It's absolutely atrocious what they're doing. Now, here's where I'm going to sort of coming to the end, but this is truly alarming. Now, it's not definitive, but uh, if any of any folks have been following vaccine science and vaccine data, this paper, when it first came out in October 20, got a lot of attention from all of us because these two researchers, they used uh, a database from Europe and the U.S., and they did statistical correlations between vaccination rates and excess mortality. And they found a consistent reproducible kind of uh, US and Europe wide relationship between increasing vaccinations and increasing excess mortality rates. Now I read the paper, but I missed something is that they also saw this other association, which is truly alarming, is that they found that in countries where we weren't vaccinating kids, right? Because this is before we got those uh, heralded uh, FDA approvals that we could jab kids as young as six months old. Before that time, we were vaccinating aggressively in adults and they saw a correlation between ramped up vaccination amongst adults and excess mortality in unvaccinated children. I don't know of another possibility to explain that relationship unless it's spurious, coincidental, but they saw it over and over out of all these correlation coefficient values that they corrected, 32 were positive. And so how come you keep having a correlation with increasing vaccination and then deaths in unvaccinated children? And they even had a timing for it. They saw when the correlations disappeared and for some reason occurred during the first 18 weeks. So again, this question for how long should we worry? I mean, the, the data is all over the place. I don't think we really know. Um, but there's a, there was a correlation with mortality. And they also found from a different data set, an unexpected increase in mortality in children correlating with adult vaccination rates in the previous period. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Um, I think I've, I hope I've said enough. Um, but I, you know, I kind of just reviewed What's known about this technology, these gene therapies that they're delivered in nanoparticles, nanoparticles distribute widely in the body, they can be excreted, exhaled, and then they can be absorbed by those in the environment that are exposed to them. So, and then we have some population or epidemiologic data suggesting that perhaps these mass vaccination campaigns had some secondary really worrisome effects. So I'm gonna change gears, Scott. Thanks for joining us. This is my partner, Scott, probably my favorite person in the world. Um, and uh, Scott and I, we started a, a telehealth practice where um, we became very interested in the topics of vaccine injury and long COVID. Uh, and that's what we specialize in. We treat COVID, long COVID, long vax. And uh, we have well over a thousand patients with those chronic syndromes. And uh, I would say Scott has been much more observant and documenting of events and um, happy to talk about it. Is, is Paul going to join us too, or maybe later? But Scott, let me, why don't you take over for a bit? Well, yeah. I'm really, I'm really grateful to you for having done the deep dive and doing the, the academic research that lends some substance to this discussion. And 
you know, shedding is something that I talk to all patients about when we have visits. And um, at this point, I would say that in a, in a patient visit, it's uh, zero to two minutes um, in order to identify um, when and where and how shedding episodes happened in their lives. Um, one, of the, one of the things that is not mentioned in the research that you're doing, uh, but, but you know from the work that we've done with our patients and our clinical practices, that uh, we test the amyloid fibrin microclotting on a lot of our patients these days. And 100% um, of the blood samples of patients that we have sent um, demonstrate amyloid fibrin microclotting. And so I would say about 20% of those patients are unvaccinated. And, and uh, when, you, when you scale amyloid fibrin microclotting, you're looking at levels between zero and four. Um, and when you talk to um, practitioners that don't deal of long haul and don't deal of vaccine injury, one of the first questions they'll ask, and it's an astute question, they'll say, well, what is your control? And I think the answer at this point uh, is damning in the direction of shedding, which is we've lost our controls. Before the pandemic, um, there may have been people who had amyloid fibrin microclotting. Now these are not like normal blood clots, right? These are clots that uh, are varied as Dr. Vaughn often says, it's like spaghetti with cheese sauce on it that's been burnt to the bottom of the pan. Like the body has a really hard time getting rid of them, right? These aren't like the blood clots that we had pre-2019. And um, I have probably at least a dozen unvaccinated patients who've got four out of four amyloid fibrin microclotting, right? And you know what else we study in our practice or what else we test quite a bit. And we, at this point, I think we have about 2000 data points on almost 500 patients is we check um, spike antibody dilution levels, right? Yep. And, you know, this is not, there's not a, a paper out there that says, yes, these are a really good indirect measure of spike, but in, in practicality, it's a useful test that we use to help guide clinical treatment. And, and what, what you will see is that the, the spike antibody dilution levels are all over the map. They don't actually correlate to amyloid fibrin microclotting, um, but uh, you will see those levels change uh, in relation to shedding experiences. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, literally, I mean, there are hundreds of times I've had conversations with patients and they had a spike antibody dilution level that might've been like a hundred, right? And, and then they it's go Scott, on- just, Scott, just for the listeners. That's very, very low. You, maybe we should go over a little bit what that range is and what we see in our different like long COVID, long vax, just so they get a sense of what those numbers sure. are like. Yeah. Sure. So um, if you go to your local hospital, they give you a useless result. It's binary. It's positive or negative. It's, I think it's purposely, as you said about something else earlier, it's obfuscating, right? If you get the test done at Quest, uh, the level, the range might be between zero and 2,500. We, we really try, and I don't have stock in LabCorp, okay? But we really try to send patients to LabCorp because yep. they do a granular test that gives you a result between zero and 25,000. And um, 
I actually have a group of patients that I affectionately call the 25,000 club, right? It's about 10% of patients. And, uh, and I've learned over time that patients are really in a hard place if they have a spike antibody dilution level above 25,000. You would not typically see someone who's unvaccinated with a level above 500. So that's about what you would expect, 500, 400, 200, if someone's simply unvaccinated. You mean someone who recovered from COVID, uh, gets this dilution level, they're around 500. Yep. I've seen maybe yep. a little bit higher, but you're right. They're quantitatively very different. Very low, right? So so then what you will see sometimes, and, and I, have, I have many patients like this, they're unvaccinated and we check their spike antibody dilution level. The highest I've ever seen is actually uh, um, among someone who works on our team, right? I think it was like 15 thousand. Actually, the other day, I think I saw one higher than that. But um, generally, you would not see a level that high in someone who's unvaccinated. But when you do, if you spend two minutes getting the history, you'll find out, uh, oh, yeah, well, I uh, was living a relatively secluded life. And then I decided I want to get back to things. I went to the airport. I went on a trip. I visited my family. And well, were they vaccinated and boosted? Yes. And did you drive around in a car with them? Yes. And, and I went to church too, right? And then they get their spike antibody dilution checked again. And guess what? They're like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. Without, Scott, without clinical evidence of developing any typical viral syndrome, they're not, they don't report right. respiratory symptoms. They just were around people. And then you'll see a jump in the antibody levels, which suggests that they've been exposed to spike and absorb right. spike. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. And, and it's interesting, you know, one of the statements that I was at a conference with, uh, one of the panelists said was somewhat dismissive of, of shedding. And they made the statement that they have scoured the world's literature and have not come across one clinical report of shedding. And now, if you heard Naomi, there's dozens of anecdotes. We see it in our practice. You can find it on social media. I encapsulated some of them in my post. But the point I want to make is, and Paul, maybe you can weigh in. If, if you were going to try to publish in a journal a case report of what you felt was shedding, you need some serologic or biomarker evidence to support that what they were like before the event. And I mean, you need something to support that a shedding. And we don't really have a test for spike. You know, we, we have what we think is a fair proxy or somewhat of a proxy. And so we have this spike antibody dilution level because remember, it's an antibody level. It's not spike, but we think it correlates to the amount of spike. But Paul, I mean, how, how would you publish, even if you had someone who like went for a hairdresser appointment and came out sick, how do you publish that and say, ah, the hairdresser was vaccinated, it was shedding? I, I, there's no journal that can support that. I, I'm, I'm yeah. yeah, but we do know there is a paper that's in press mm. that should be available soon that looked at unvaccinated women who were exposed to women who were recently vaccinated, and they tracked their progress. So I think that's one way of doing it. Yep. And so the question I have for you and Scott is assuming shedding, well, shedding is a real thing. So what is the common route by which a vaccinated person sheds to somebody else? Is it the skin or is it through exhaled exosomes? I think, you know, of all the routes, because we know these nanoparticles can be tears, urine, sweat, feces, all of that. 
but these shedding events, uh, you know, the, the first time, the first two that I saw it was uh, a massage therapist and acupuncture. So there is physical contact. So that could be, you know, uh, sweat or secretions on the skin. But there's too many cases where there's not physical contact and it has to be inhalational. Um, the lung surface area of the of of the, the the surface area of the lung is large, and our exhaled breath has lots of exosomes in it. I think, given the distance, it has to be respiratory as the primary route. Is that is that what you think, Scott? Yeah, um, I could give several examples, right? Like a a patient who what we figured out was he would go to the gym and he had a routine of doing mat work, and if you study the the nature of um, aerosolized particles, they tend to be more dispersed in the upper layer. Uh, if you have like an eight foot high room or 10 foot high room, um, the aerosolized particles are thinner in the upper six feet. And the closer you get to the floor, the more concentrated they are. Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, what we figured out was that um, he would feel terrible every time he came home from doing the mat work at the gym. Um, I, I have an example of a person who is an unvaccinated band teacher who was literally standing in front of students who are blowing through their <laughs> trumpets and trombones and saxophones all day long. And his spike antibody dilution level was like 13,000. And he acted like a badly injured vaccinated patient with neurological symptoms. Um, I have a patient whose uh, family came to visit her uh, in a warm climate. So they spend a lot of time driving around in a car with the air conditioning on recirculating, you know, to get maximized air conditioner, you recirculate the air, got sick as a dog and her spike antibody dilution shot up. So those are three different examples. I will yep. often say to patients, you know, if you're going to ride in a car with someone with the windows up, you might as well have sex with them because you're, <laughs> you're, you're inhaling, you're inhaling their exosomes in a very intense way. Yeah. God, how how common do you think shedding is? I think it's happening all the time. Well, um, hold on. Let me rephrase the question for you, Paul. Um, <laughs> I think the science shows that vaccinated. Well, so there's a couple of things, ways to answer that, right? So we don't know the duration of uh, spike protein production or persistence in the body. We have varying estimates from studies, right? The more recent one is is a long time. So. So we know it does happen, right? I don't know that it happens in perpetuity for every vaccinated patient. We, I don't th we think we need more evidence of that. Um, but is the, I think the better question is how often is the shedding clinically apparent, right? So, you know, I mean, Paul, you and I, we, we've been traveling, speaking, advocating, testifying. We're around hundreds, if not thousands of people. Um, I have not felt unwell. I've largely feel well all the time. Um, one of I'm going to answer Scott, and then I want you to go. I, I think well, the easiest answer is we don't know how often clinically significant shedding events are occurring in the general population. I think two things need to happen. You need either a someone recently vaccinated or b someone who's making a lot of spike production. And we we know that some people make a lot of spike. We know that from autopsy studies. Those who've died from the vaccine have been shown to have died from the vaccine where they stayed for spike. Those poor unfortunate people had spike disseminated throughout all their organs. So I think some people are more likely to cause symptomatic shedding. And I think some people are more likely to suffer symptomatic shedding. I am glad I'm not one of them. It seems like some patients are more susceptible for yes. whatever reason. Scott? So if, if you look at the, the distribution of the spike antibody dilution levels among our patients 
as a proxy, right? Again, yep. it's, it's an indirect, imperfect measure, but 10% of the patients have levels above 25,000. You know, I think that they're a couple standard deviations outside uh, the center because they are, I think they may be people who are producing spike more over a longer period of time. Um, and Scott, you know, one, one thing that I think, because you and I talk about this a lot, and I think for the audience, one thing that you would kind of come on to is that in some of your patients who are susceptible to shedding, where you saw clinical relapses and worsening of symptoms, you actually took the action and said, well, can we test your spouse, right? And is, isn't that when you started to find some of these asymptomatic spouses where you were like, whoa, yeah. spouses? Yeah, it's, I mean, I mean, this, this really uh, was an advance in our capability to effectively treat patients when we started uh, assessing spike antibody dilution levels in households and treating spouses and other family members. So there, there have been multiple, I mean, probably more than a hundred patients at this point who we were having trouble getting better. And when we did testing of their spouse and we saw, oh, wow, they have an elevated level, started teaching them things, the same things that you've been talking about for quite some time now, Dr. Merrick, about what do you do to promote a breakdown of spike in your body, right? Intermittent fasting, you use resveratrol, you use natokinase, you use ivermectin. Um, and the shift there was, instead of the spouse looking at the patient saying, you're the one with the problem, they realized, oh, there's some, A, I may actually be the source of this, and B, there's something that I can do about it. I, a, a really significant dynamic there, which I don't have an explanation for, is the gender disparity. And that is, if you have a couple, and, and I'm going to use heterosexual couples as an example. I know we have, we have homosexual couples too, but I'm going to use heterosexual couples as an example. Um, if you have a male partner who was vaccinated and is asymptomatic, they could have a spike antibody dilution level of 25,000 and not be symptomatic. But the female partner who's unvaccinated has a spike level, could be 1,000, 2,000 or more, she's symptomatic. If you flip the tables, generally speaking, I mean, I've got multiple examples of this where the female has a spike antibody dilution level above 25,000 um, and she's symptomatic, but the male partner is not vaccinated. He's got almost no level and he he's ready to, he's saying, hey, sorry that you're sick, but I'm going on a cruise. Right. So, Scott, another way of uh, how I'm interpreting what you're saying is that uh, men seem particularly resistant to symptomatic shedding uh, symptoms, yes. uh, whereas women are much more sensitive. And I, I agree yep. with I would say most I'm trying. No, I do have a shedding event in a male. Um, I do have a patient who's capable of shedding in church. He definitely gets worse in church. But uh, yeah. And yeah. That's not to say that men um, don't experience shedding. Right. Um, but there definitely is a gender disparity. Okay. Hey, Pierre, should we get some questions? Yeah, from I, yeah. <laughs> we sure have a lot. I'm, and... I'm sure there's no questions. It's fine. This is oh, a no, not at all. So... None at all. Like uh, we could go on for at least three hours here, but at, at any rate, you know, a lot of people are wondering about, does the risk diminish with time? I mean, is, is there a period of, if the shedding has happened, if somebody has been vaccinated, 
over a period of time, does it diminish or can somebody still be full of the spike protein and, and, and carry it to you a year later? Do you know at all? I'll take a whack at that. Scott? Yeah. Um, I think that if people are actively doing things to neutralize spike, which the FLCCC has been advocating for a very long time now, um, that over time that you'll see a diminishment in the shedding. But I think that there are many people out there in the world that have no idea about this conversation that we're having. They're just living their lives. They may or may not be getting boosted. Um, and if they are among that 10% or whatever the percent is of people that um, seems to be perpetuating spike in their manufacturing in their body, like, yeah, they're still shedding. Yeah. And also, also, one other thing is I see people who, like clinicians, right? If someone's a clinician or someone works in an office setting and they're continually going into a place where there's not great ventilation, they're in close proximity to people, they're commuting with someone, they're constantly around people who are also vaccinated and boosted. It seems there seems to be a, a perpetuation yeah. there. I would and say, I, I, probably it's the same answer, Scott. I, I'm just going to say maybe a little bit. I think that the risks are highest in those recently vaccinated. I think if you look at some of the persistence data and whatnot, the possibility of shedding is much higher in the recently vaccinated. But as Scott points out, it doesn't go to zero. I mean, we he's saying 10%. And, and again, from autopsy studies, some of those deaths occurred, you know, months later. I, I mean, there are still a small cohort that are capable of shedding uh, significantly. But I, I think those numbers drop with time. But I'm going to finish by saying these are all things that should be studied. And we need really good, more formal uh, studies on this. Well, and it would be hard to do. Here, here's another question. Uh, Pauline Gorman says, if you've been shed upon, so now that you've got this, can you then shed on someone else? Does it just keep going that way? I'm going to say yes, because Pierre and I both, tell me if I'm wrong here, Pierre, but I think we both have examples of, um, good example would be parents whose children are school age and they come home from school and the parents get secondary shedding from them. Do you yep. have examples of that? No, I think that's a, that's, that's a good example. Yeah, I have a couple of examples. One is similar to yours, is that um, one person who's susceptible, uh, definitely when the kids home, come from, from school, she can see a spike in her symptoms when they're first exiting from school. Um, and so I think that's fairly supportive evidence of secondary shedding. But But again, I think to, to be someone who suffers from second issue, you have to be, I think, even more particularly sensitive, is my guess. We have someone, uh, Von Sweeney says, can you get shedding from a non-vaccinated massage therapist who has vaccinated clients as well? I think that's a different form of is, is, is secondary shedding happening. So I think theoretically, yes, I don't think it would be that common, but yeah, I, we, we've seen phenomenon that suggests that that could be a possibility. A lot of people want to know, does sperm from an from a vaccinated man affect an unvaccinated woman? Um, so after, how do I want to talk about this? Um, frankly, like Dr. Ruth. Well, yeah, yeah, frankly, like Dr. Ruth. Um, 
there, there have been instances of acute symptoms after uh, sexual intercourse. I, I describe a couple of them in my series. Um, I, I put that beyond a paywall. I don't know why. I, well, I do know why. I just sort of didn't want to sort of muddy the, the, the conversation. But um, I think theoretically that can happen. Um, and then, you know, we also have data. And this is, again, not from like the clinical symptoms of getting acutely ill after sex. But um, I mean, th these are big concerns. And we know the spike can distribute to the testes and the sperm. And we do see reproductive impacts across the world in epidemiologic data. I mean, we, we have seen sudden drops in birth rates, infertility, increases in miscarriages. And so, um, especially infertility. So I, I do think there is, this is where it gets really uncomfortable because, you know, um, many people are vaccinated. And, you know, we've seen the demonization of the unvaccinated and, um, I'm not interested in 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 trying to. It's not that we're demonizing them, but I don't. It's, I'm very. I'm difficulty with that one. I, I think there are potential risks. The thing that I would say this is, I wanted to say something a little bit more reassuring. And this is, I've said this answer in to, to different forms of this question. Because a lot of people are concerned. What did this vaccine do to me? And should I be worried of dropping dead? And this is kind of a tautological, but. I just tell people the farther out you are from your last vaccine and you're okay, it's more likely you're going to be okay. And so I think we just really need to move away from these gene therapy vaccines. Enough of them, you know, preserve your health. Um, you know, let's be clear as because I saw some of the questions in the chat of like, what can I do and whatnot. But I would say the I prevent protocol that, that uh, Paul and us uh, put together you know, for people who fear vaccine injury, that applies to people who are worried about shedding. I mean, those are all uh, generally quite safe, uh, often nutraceuticals. Um, they have really good mechanisms. And, you know, I, I think that applies to this same, but we don't need a new protocol for shedding. I mean, I would just go to iPrevent. Including the nose, uh, the nose sprays, but some people are well, asking, that help? That's not on iPrevent. Um, uh, nose sprays is more to protect against COVID. Uh, iPrevent is is more um, things that would break down and counteract the effects of spike. Okay. All right. Now here's a here's a question from uh, Alan Apple who says I'm an extremely healthy 80 year old and I've been blindsided by serious osteoarthritis in both hips and knees. I did not get the vaccine, but my wife did, and she almost died from a stroke. Is there a chance she has shed on me and that could have caused osteoarthritis? I will say diffuse joint pain. So the way I would characterize that, because I, I can't be definitive on any of this, an 80-year-old with osteoarthritis, but if it's that number of joints, it sounds like something systemic. Number one, the way in which I think about shedding is that if shedding is real, it means that you're capable of developing symptoms that are typical for those who have suffered vaccine injuries, syndromes, or complications. And uh, Scott, I think, would agree, we definitely see diffuse joint pains in our patient population that were temporarily associated to the vaccine. I mean, vaccine is this dysregulated immune system. There's a lot of inflammation, and there's a lot of things going on. But that is a typical symptom. So when, when the person asks, is it possible that this could be the cause? I can't exclude it, is how I would say it. it. It would fit with a vaccine injury that we have witnessed uh, in the wake of, of vaccine vaccinated patients. 
And, and it, it's, it is, the, the way he says it, you know, this sudden onset at 80 without a history and it's, it's hips and knees. Um, I, that's, that's quite concerning. Suspicious, huh? Um, people are asking, can unvaccinated people get blood clots from shedding? That was part of what I was stating earlier is that, you know, 20% of the patients that we've send blood samples on for amyloid fibrin microclotting. Now these are not the what you would think of as a normal blood clot, right? These are smaller clots. They may be missing adam TS13, which is an enzyme that helps break them down. They have amyloid proteins in them. They're more tenacious. They're focused in the capillary beds. Um, it's hard it's hard for the body to break them down with its own resources. And um, and we have patients who are unvaccinated um, who've got four out of four amyloid fibrin microclotting, and we're treating them with anticoagulation therapy. And, and the one thing I, I want to sort of help people understand um, what we're talking about is that, you know, prior to the vaccination campaign, two terms really didn't exist in medicine. One is turbo cancer. The other one's microclotting, in my opinion, as, as far as from pathophysiologic understanding. So we, we never had the term uh, turbo cancer in our nomenclature, and we never had the term microclotic. So what Scott's talking about is, because when people say, can I get a blood clot? If you're talking about the traditional definition, which I would say is large vein clots, right, or macro clots, which actually impede blood flow to large vessels, what Scott and I see and, and what's been described is uh, aggregates of cells and fibrin and proteins, but they're tiny, but they're present in the circulation. And what they impact is the microcirculation. So they're not interrupting flow through the great veins. They're actually interrupting flow through actually the most important, which is the tiniest vessels, which are the capillaries. And um, so could, so I guess the question was, um, could I get a clot from shedding? Um, I, I Ugh. I think, I mean, Scott, I know your answer would be more confident than mine, but we do believe that we're seeing a, a pretty consistent prevalence of microclotting. Now, I wish we had Jordan on here because one of the things that I asked Jordan, so if Jordan Vaughn is Dr. Vaughn, I, I, I would consider him the national expert right now on vaccine-related microclotting. Um, he's deeply studied on the topic, but you know, Scott and I do these uh, microclotting tests. And the one question that I've had about this test is what are the controls? You know, so if it's a scale from zero to four and in our symptomatic patients that we tested on, we're generally seeing three, 3.5, four out of four. And I was saying, who are you using for controls? And Scott, I think you're the one who told me, right? His controls are measuring one to 1.5. So the, the, yeah. Yeah, there, no, there aren't zeros anymore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we do think that some of this uh, is uh, subtly and hopefully subclinically and without really long-term dangerous impacts. I, the hypothesis is that this, this spike exposure all over the world, whether it's from natural COVID infection or shedding or exposure to the vaccine, um, you know, I, th I think is disturbing um, the pathology of, of the blood. And Lynn Kaganovich wants to know, can recent headaches be a symptom of shedding. For sure. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> For sure. Um, that's that's a not uncommon. I, I wouldn't say it's the most common, Scott, but it, it's it's not uncommon. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I related an anecdote 
of uh, actually it's a patient of Scott's because I found it in his in his clinical notes. Scott um, was giving me um, examples of his patients where they describe it. One woman describes a um, number of different exposures that she gets where she gets symptoms. Uh, but she described the fact that her daughter, it's her first boyfriend, very sweet young kid. She likes the kid. He's vaccinated and boosted. And every time she picks them up and takes them on a ride, she gets a headache in the car. And he's sitting in the back seat behind her. Um, yeah. <laughs> the um, somebody somebody asked, would masks help with respiratory shedding issues? Don't know. Any reason I, to... I'm a little bit outlier on the mask. I'm not a pro mask guy. I don't have one on like my, um, you know, my Facebook feed. I don't even have Facebook feed, but uh, I mean, I do think there is some uh, efficacy to mask. I, I don't know that you want to live your life with a mask. I, I, I And I don't even know if it would protect against nanoparticles and shedding. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you, it would be unlikely. Yeah. You talked about really not knowing how long it takes for the... For, for the shedding to stop, but is people are really, this is really bothers people. They want to know, you know, how long after the vaccine should you stop being around people? I mean, I, I will tell you that where I live, they're giving out the vaccine tomorrow. <laughs> so do, do I want to stay away from everybody for a while or what? You know, there's, you, there's only so much that we know about who around this is vaccinated, but if you know that someone was vaccinated uh, uh, and you can in any way, shape or form avoid being around them for at least two weeks, I would, it for was. your own well-being. Does but the shedding ever stop? Ever from, uh, or we don't no, we have don't, a clue. We, we, we don't, don't know. know. It probably decreases with time, but we don't know. Yep. Um, we had a couple of questions here that are, really uh, concerned about miscarriages. Is there any connection to shedding and recurrent miscarriages or an effect on DNA in the egg sperm? Don't know and don't know. Okay. Someone asks, says, have you looked into berberine as a preventive treatment? Multiple papers on PubMed are regard regarding this. I happened to come across this as I was taking 400 milligrams twice a day of berberine for uh, Betsy. Best yeah. Betsy. It's on the iPrevent protocol. I know it is. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> but I guess they're, they're wanting to know, you know, how, um, how good is it for this or, you know? We don't know. I mean, listen, that I prevent protocol. I mean, we're starved for data, good studies and research. We are doing uh, what's been done for hundreds of years in medicine is knowledge of pathophysiology, pharmacology mechanisms. Uh, we're using an assessment of uh, safety of these interventions with the potential benefits. And we're doing a risk benefit um, and mechanistic physiologic approach. And we, we've offered, uh, you know, led by Paul, you know, we've come up with a list of uh, compounds, nutraceuticals that we know are safe uh, and would likely have benefit. We have not been able to measure that. There's no prospective study that we've done or even retrospective where we can compare those on the iPrevent protocol with those who haven't, um, you know, we're, we're making just what we think are sound clinical recommendations. 
but there's they're not based on on clinical data on impacts on outcomes. Um, but we believe that they're safe and they would likely be helpful. And it's good to take precautions, right? You you don't want to find out later that you did nothing and now uh, you're at increased risk of some sort of pathology in the future. Here's a question. I'm curious if shedding can affect my immune system like it does for those who got the shots. My husband is getting sick more often than he used to, and I'm noticing lately that I am too. Before the shots came out, I really got sick. Diminished immune system? Uh, well, I, I would say that I see that in patients. I mean, I see that in um, long-haul patients who I think uh, I think have been impacted by shedding. I mean, if, if someone cornered me in an elevator and said, what do you do for a living and what's it about? At the base, I would say it's, it's, a, it's an autoimmune dysregulation. That's kind of the, the foundation, right? So short answer is yes. Yeah. And a viewer wants to know, what about the plasmid DNA contamination and shedding? Do you have any view on that? So, so let, me, let me step back for a second, because I'm just going to be open and honest here. So we knew we were going to address this topic. And yes, I've been deeply researched. And we've found some really concerning evidence and data uh, for concern. But I would say for everything that we've discovered, uh, it leads to just immense amounts of questions um, that we cannot really answer. Um, and that is a major question that I want to ask, that I would love someone to answer. And as of right now, um, if anyone watched our webinar with uh, Jessica Rose a week or two ago, um, you know, the those questions are starting to be answered. From what I understand, there's an effort to test to see whether these plasmids have capacity of integrating to the genome. Uh, the second question is, can they be shed? Uh, I believe that if the plasmids are in there, based on their size, they can be enclosed in lipid nanoparticles and likely be excreted and absorbed. Um, but whether they're still capable of integration and what the risks of that are, I, I mean, I have hundreds of questions on that. So I, I wish I could answer them. I, I would just say, um, just put it on the list of things we're concerned about. And that we need research about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um... Here's someone who says, I had the virus three weeks ago. So do you think my natural immunity now is uh, high enough to block other people's shedding at this time? If you know, if you can guess. Mm. Mm. Depends which spike protein they're shedding. <laughs> Did they get the first version, the second version, the third version? You know, it, oh. it might have. That's a, that's actually a cool question. I, I, I like that question. Whether you know, because you're recently covered, you probably your spike antibodies or, or SARS-CoV-2 antibodies are high, and would that offer some protection? And I don't know, Paul. Possibly, maybe? I would say yes, maybe, but we don't know. Yeah. Here's a question about the cancer. Have you seen a case of turbo cancer go into remission? And does the exposure of someone sick or vaccinated activate something to cause the cancer to go out of control? Well, so I, that's an easier one. We're not oncologists. Um, 
in our patient population, I'll speak, Scott, maybe I, I have not had I haven't. Uh, who's had cancer yet. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm drowning and surrounded by clinical anecdotes that my ever-widening network of colleagues and, and contacts will report this one has terrible cancer, that one. I, I don't know what the clinical impacts are, how they're being treated or of a success story. So, but, but that's just a no answer. I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of would be really interested. Um, you know, Paul, the big brain there wrote the big book on repurposed drugs for cancer. I know a lot of those drugs and I'd be very happy to use them. And I'd be really happy to start trying as an adjunctive measure to maybe offering people uh, repurposed drug regimens as an adjunct to whatever primary treatment they have. But, but that's not what we're doing. I, I just don't have any clinical experience to say. I think we're and gonna... I've had I've had patients who have uh, developed cancer while under my care, but not what I would call turbo cancers, and haven't seen anybody with turbo cancer um, recover. I I just haven't had a patient with turbo cancer. One of the uh, Laura Chamberlain says, "Can you tell me what the name is of the test that you do for microclotting? Is it different than a D-dimer?" Yes. Yeah. So. So a, a D-dimer um, is, is measuring the fragments of a, what you would call macro or what would have been a normal clot before the pandemic, right? But the, um, the amyloid fibrin microclots are very difficult to break down. And so you often won't see byproducts or breakdown products of it in the blood. So what, what we are getting is, um, an electron microscopic analysis with a with a particular stain, um, and it's. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure. What, I'm not sure what well, else to say about it. I mean, I like the point you made. So, I mean, D-dimer is just a really bad test because you have to understand the pathophysiology that's happening. Um, in regards to the spike protein. So I, I'm just going to toot my own horn here. The very first paper I wrote on COVID, <laughs> which we started writing in April of 2020 with a group of residents, is that we were doing these uh, TEG studies. TEG is thromboelastography. Very cool test. It gives you all of this information on the clotting dynamics. So we have a number of dynamics in our blood which help us form clots, and then we have dynamics which help us break down clots. In order to get a generated D-dimer, you have to degrade the clots. So generally when there's a presence of clots, we kind of try to break them down. And so you'll see elevated D-dimers. The main defect we saw, and this was in a population of severely ill COVID patients, was zero fibrinolysis. So they had no fibrinolytic activity. They couldn't break down clots. And I have one patient who's chronically ill who very smart guy, really interested, and he wanted to get a TEG. The problem with TEG studies is you can't go to an outpatient lab. They're really for ICUs and operating rooms. Um, it's not really an easily clinically available test. This kid, he's actually a medical student, he managed to get a TEG study. And it was all normal except for zero fibrinolytic activity. So D-dimer is just not a good test for, uh, for the, the, the problems that we see. Um, we have to ask Scott, what lab does the electromicroclotting test? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Do you remember off the top of your head? And if yeah, you don't, know. well, maybe we can get it. Come see us <laughs> well, yeah. right. on, okay. on this program, but anyway. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But bottom line is the I prevent vaccine injuries is the protocol that 
at the moment gives you the best shot against this kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, Iprevent is not for vaccine injury. That's um, uh, I recover. Um, Iprevent I mean, is Iprevent. what okay. we put together for really to address people who are worried that, that they'd gotten vaccinated and they're worried of, you know, developing pathologies or problems related to, um, you know, accumulated and produced spike protein. And so the, these are interventions that we think would uh, counteract, degrade, or blunt um, any impacts of spike protein. And, and that would be relevant to someone who's worried about shedding. So it's on our website. I invite people to go there. It's got a number of different uh, things. And and some of are good. You know, I, I'll just share. I take natokinase, but for none of the reasons we've discussed, I just love uh, the history, the mechanisms of the drug. I, I, I love that the Japanese are really quite healthy. They have low rates of heart disease. I just think it's a good supplement. I just take it because I think it's a great mechanism. But, um, you know, that's one of the elements on the protocol. All right. There is hope. There is hope. Yeah. Okay. And Pierre, you, you want to Tell our audience, first of all, we thank Scott and, of course, Paul, always, for being on. But, Pierre, uh, how about telling people about what's coming up soon? Uh, we have another conference. And oh, I think say, you'd like me to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, our third, I shouldn't say annual, because this is the third one in about 18 yeah. months. But, um, you know, we're having a conference again. Um, it's got kind of two focuses. We definitely are still focusing on it being uh, uh, largely, or I shouldn't say larger, but there's going to be a lot of content for providers, even lay people on how we treat um, long vax, long COVID. Um, but we're also going to be focusing on, on really... Um, you know, building sort of a community and a place uh, to exchange information, accurate information for people to convene um, uh, with the FLCCC going forward. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's been clear we've made the diagnosis. Our healthcare system is broken. Uh, we need good information, good guidance. Uh, we want it to be open, collaborative, and a, a place that uh, people can share and and, um, uh, and and come as a resource. I think a lot of people think of us as that, and I think we're going to make that even open and more uh, valuable for all. And, and so you're going to hear about some of the topics that we're going to address uh, at that conference. So please come down. We're going to uh, Phoenix, February 2nd through 4th. Um, so register, get your flights, and um, come connect, have community, collaborate, we'll exchange. Um, it'll be a good time. You know, the last conference, uh, the people who showed up there, I mean, they're just the salt of the earth. I mean, these are the best people Beautiful. in COVID. I mean, the doctors who were persecuted and fought back, you know, all the lay people who are awake and aware and educated and listening. And uh, it was just such a great place to connect. So um, I'm looking forward to the next one. And wonderful. And early registration is now open. So we'll see you all down there. Thank you. Thank you, you people who are doing such good work. Uh, Pierre and Scott and Paul. I mean, saving lives is uh, is what you do. And yeah. you've been doing it very well. Thank you. I want to talk about a couple other conferences now, folks. Uh, there are, there's, you know, uh, Coming up this weekend, there are two big ones. Our FLCCC team will be dividing and conquering with some heading to the Children's Health Defense's Rise and Resist Conference in Savannah, Georgia. Others heading to the Brownstone Institute's Rebuild Freedom event in Dallas, Texas. So check out the links on the screen to learn more and make sure to follow their social channels and ours for updates this weekend. Now then, next week, you want to join us here.
for another important discussion on vitamin D, Alzheimer's disease, and cancer. Our own Drs. Merrick and Corey will be joined by Dr. William Grant. Now a bit of trivia here. Dr. Grant is the man who first contacted Pierre regarding the disinformation playbook and shared with him how it had been used previously against him and his own work on vitamin D. So make sure not to miss it. Next Wednesday, same time, same place. But in the meantime, our doc, we've got doctors doing a lot of work. You know, check out what our other busy doctors have been doing. Dr. Bean is sharing an episode of Long Story Short, looking at mRNA vaccine-associated seizures in children aged two to five years, which we discussed briefly last week. And Dr. Liz Mumper has a new episode of Kids Corner that breaks down the MM. WR study on pediatric patients and myocarditis. You can watch these now on our website at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean and forward slash Kids Corner, respectively, or find them on our FLCCC Alliance Rumble and Odyssey channels. Ah, we have a new guide. We This is called Understanding COVID Vaccines. Medical experts around the world tell us that the messenger RNA vaccines, mRNA as we all say, have caused unprecedented levels of injury and unexplained deaths. And the goal of this guide is to help readers understand the mechanisms of damage, what the research shows and reactions and side effects of this new technology. You can find this now on our website, flccc.net, under the tools and guides tab or at the link on the screen. And with that, let's bring up our wonderful nurses. We had three on. Christina's back here with Samantha and Emily. You must have had a busy night. How'd it go? Well, it was pretty busy. Ladies, what do you think? Yeah, that was a lot. (laughs) No words. (laughs) Were you able to answer a lot? Because, I mean, clearly the doctors uh, don't have a lot of the answers yet on this. Um, They're doing the best with what we know, but nobody's doing the studies everybody needs. No, I mean, we don't have all the answers, but I think the, the, the bottom line is that if everyone works on their own immunity and making themselves healthy, then these shedding issues and other sorts of issues with getting sick or maybe less of an issue. So that would be my nursing advice. Nice hat you're wearing, by the way. I know, and uh, it's available in our store, Betsy. So if anyone Oh, very good. Very good. Check out the store. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and for doing all that you do to help um, everyone that's in the FLCCC and everyone else out there. Thank you so much. Now then, with that, we need to thank every each and every one of you out there uh, for joining us on this exciting and long journey we've been on for supporting us in all the ways that you do and for helping us reach more people and save more lives. We wouldn't, we couldn't do this without you. So good night uh, to our lovely FLCCC family. We will see you next week, but first, but first, but first, don't miss this story from a nurse who is one of you followers. This is a good one. My family doctor would not prescribe ivermectin and thought I was nuts to consider it. 
I have been a nurse for 54 years. I have knowledge of how it has worked since the 1960s. I have seen the medical system change through the years. I have avoided using medicines as much as possible, preferring to choose natural remedies. Because of my profession, I was required to get vaccinations routinely. Then the mRNA vaccines came out, and I refused. Big question marks began to form in my mind because this type of vaccine was not created or treated like all the other vaccines. I was very skeptical and began doing my research. The more I researched, the more skeptical and frightened of the mRNA vaccines I became. Then, I found out about FLCCC. Everything began to fall into place. My family doctor would not prescribe ivermectin and thought I was nuts to consider it. So, in 2020, I found another source for hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. My husband and I travel a lot and continued to do so, even during the pandemic. We take ivermectin once per week and have not had any ill effects. Arthritis areas have cleared up too. We are in our 70s and feel healthy. We have lost friends, and some of our remaining friends think we are somewhat crazy because we still take ivermectin, the horse medicine. But, they are starting to look at us with different eyes now. In fact, they are watching us carefully because I think they realize we are onto something. Your stories are powerful. They change hearts and minds. Share yours today. Send it into my story at flccc.net.